Hudson to bring our reading. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. That's the whole chapter to be found on page 1109. Page 1109. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through, the gospel of, that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Great, Alice, thanks very much indeed. I'd love you to keep that open, page uh, 1109, over onto 1110. Uh, And uh, let me just say a short word of prayer as I begin. Father, we'd love for this prayer of Paul to be appropriated to our lives, that we would know your love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Father, this goes beyond our own human capabilities. We ask for your spirit now to open our eyes, to soften our wills, to teach our minds, and to lead us into greater obedience. For the sake of the world and for your glory, amen. Amen. Shrove Tuesday, this Tuesday, and uh, Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. Traditionally, uh, the Christian church has sought to discipline herself through Lent, throwing off anything that would hinder her walk in the love and the grace and the power of the Lord. And so whatever it is, that's the encouragement for the 40 days of Lent. If it's booze, then give up booze that you might walk closer with the Lord. If it's chocolate, chocolate, whatever it might be. It might be actually a discipline to take something on. To maybe, uh, for those 40 days, every single day, to take on five minutes to be still, to read a portion of scripture, just something like we've just had read now, to think about it for two or three minutes, to ask God to open the eyes of your heart. Maybe you've not done that on a regular basis, and maybe Lent is a time for you to practice that. Uh, I guarantee you'll feel closer to the Lord, you'll feel bigger in him as a result. We, uh, it, that's, it's no coincidence that our sermon series this term coincides with the, the, sort of the period of Lent Recovering truth. We're trying to sort of throw off those things that have glazed our sight or dimmed our understanding of the Christian faith. We're, we're attempting to recover basic truth. There's nothing new here. If it feels radical, it's not new. It's just maybe that we haven't seen these truths with this perspective for a little while, if ever. We're recovering the basic truth that God has an original design for our lives to live in freedom, to live in power, to live in the authority that we see modeled in Jesus when he lived here on earth. We studied the kingdom of God and Jesus living out the kingdom here on earth. And uh, there was something in us, I'm guessing, that longed for that. When Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. This wasn't some kind of teasing hope that's out of our grasp. This is reality that we can live in. But we've been uh, rehearsing various analogies or metaphors. One such is, is this idea of driving with the handbrake on. A few of us kind enough to admit that we've done that. Uh, we're supporting the vicar where he's done that. This sort of sluggishness to the car akin to the sluggishness of life and this sense inside that the life we actually live doesn't quite match up to the life we know we could be living in Christ. And so we've explored the enemy's schemes in this battle which we sung about earlier on in in the hymn and which we experience, this spiritual battle where the enemy, through gaining a foothold into our lives, builds it into a stronghold a fortress of resistance in our lives against the things of God. And we're taking seriously, we're attempting as a church to take seriously this ability to recognize strongholds, work of the enemy that dims and dulls and restricts the life of God in us, and to demolish them in Jesus' name, recognizing the fact that he has done the work of defeating Satan 
on the cross. The power of sin, not the reality of sin in everyday life. We see it all around us and in our own lives. But the power of sin has been broken. And we no longer have to collude with the enemy and his schemes to, to indulge in giving him space in our lives, allowing him to build up the resistances and the things that, that knock us offline from the plumb line of God's truth. And I want to start this morning, and uh, you, you've got these sheets, have you, in front of you? So uh, uh, little spaces if you want to scribble some notes or some references. And let me just say, uh, before I get on to that first point there, that I've got some supplementary notes that sort of an attempt to back up and give a little bit of background to what I want to talk about today. I haven't got time to cover it all. So here are these notes. They're on the, I think they're on the table at the back and at the sh- on the sort of shelf at the far back. So do take a copy if you'd like to um, sort of bone up on this, as it were. And I'd love, we'd love to see you. We'd love you to join us on a Tuesday. Many of you have, and I know you're getting a lot out of uh, digesting what we talk about on a Sunday digesting in our groups either on Tuesday in the Mission Hall or Wednesday at Rigart Road. So again, you'd be really welcome, even if you're not normally part of a, of a midweek group. Where do we start? We start with Jesus. John's prologue, John chapter 1 and verse 14, where John says the word, referring to Jesus, the word became flesh and blood and lived amongst us. Jesus came to live amongst us. And then there's this glorious phrase, we've beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Imagine that. A human being full of grace, of, of, of love, of limitless, unconditional love and truth. Have you ever come across an individual at work, in neighbours, people in the streets, walking the dog, in the shops. Have you come across someone you, you, you know as you engage and encounter them? They are full of grace and full of truth. Maybe on first encounter, but actually sooner or later the reality sinks in. No. <laughs> Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus is the glory of God. He is full of unconditional love, of grace. He's full of truth. Do you remember we looked a few weeks ago at his saying, in relation to the devil, he says, he has nothing in me, or he has no hold on me. There's no foothold for the enemy in Jesus' life because he's so full of truth and grace. There's no room. And Jesus in dying and being raised to new life, Jesus in pouring out his spirit and the birth of the church, creates, or there is initiated a gathering, a people, the church, who, who who will sort of bear his image, who will be the recipients of his grace and truth. The bearers of it. And we see that in this letter to the Ephesians. Just, just track with me. If you're in page uh, 1108, 109. The start of chapter 2. Interesting to contrast it with the end of chapter 2. The very first verse, Paul says, As for you, chapter 2 of Ephesians, this is leading into this prayer that we'll look at. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead in relation to God. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. 
in relation to God. Jump across, look, he talks about what God has done in Christ in reconciling both Jew and Gentile, bringing these two unlikely extremes together as an indication of the extraordinary miracle of God. And so that verse 22 of chapter 2, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's what God has done. He's taken something that was dead and made it alive. It's like he's creating a building in which his life may live. We are Christians in Christ. We are like a a sort of living temple. And in the temple, in that holy of holies, if you like, God lives by his spirit. That's what Paul is arguing there. And so, chapter 3 and verse 1, for this reason. In other words, for, for what, because of what God has done. Because of this, because of this, this perfect, grace-filled, truth-filled life that God has initiated in the church. For this reason, I, and then he, oh, he gets carried away, as Paul sometimes does. And uh, so from verse 2 down to verse 13, there's this kind of autobiography as he rehearses this great mystery, this, this, this extraordinary miracle of God in, in birthing the church and his part in it. And, and then he gathers, he catches him, oh, but now where was I? And verse 14, the foot of the page there, he, oh yes, of course, for this reason. It refers back to chapter 2. The for this reason is out of this extraordinary thing that God has done in bringing to life, his life, what was formerly dead. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray, verse 16. And on the sheet here, some of the key things, themes, ideas that Paul prays for, for the Ephesian church, and by derivation, for every single one of us who are in personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. He prays that we individually and as a church might be like Jesus. We might be this dwelling full of grace and truth. I pray that he may, verse 16, strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. An indication there that this strength to live for him is not just an emotional thing. This love that that, uh, Paul is praying for is not merely... Uh, emotion, although we'll, we'll experience it in a sense, in part, through our emotions, through our soul. But actually its source is, is our inner being, our spiritual being, and it's by his spirit that he will strengthen us. So that verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ living in us, not visiting us every now and then for an hour on a Sunday. <laughs> but actually living. If you went to visit someone, and maybe you go around for an evening meal or you, or you stay for a week, you wouldn't walk in the house and say, oh, I wouldn't, I'm going I'm to move that picture. Oh, no, let's not have the chest of drawers there. We'll move that. To, I'm going to paint these walls. That's an awful color. You wouldn't do that. Would you stay at home? You're just visiting. You don't have that kind of right. But if you buy a home, you buy a house, and you move and you think, right, I am going to redecorate. I'm going to refurbish. I'm going to have this exactly how I want it. That's what Jesus does with the believer. He comes into the heart, not to visit and go, oh well, not quite how I'd have it, but never mind, I'll be out soon. He's coming to renovate. He gets down to the foundations. He wants to go into the attic. He wants to create a life that is full of his grace and his truth. 
That comes through our inner being, by Christ's spirit dwelling in us. So that we might be, look at the, just the idiom that's uh, pictured in the end of verse 17, that we might be rooted and established in love. Every now and then, Joe and I go and attack uh, the garden out there. Lots of things are, are rooted and established, weeds and things, not particularly strong there. You, you kind of get a good grip of them and you sort of yank and, and up it comes. It's, it's, it's not particularly rooted, it's not particularly established. But these two plane trees out the front here, you know, just suppose, actually they're protected, so I can't do anything about them, but just supposing we wanted to move them, it would take more than just a bit of a yank. It would take more than just a few of us hugging it and giving it a bit of a touch. They are, they are deeply rooted. They are established. Little nursery school, Zebedee, they come and play on the patch of grass. Well, I generously call it grass, but anyway, uh, out here in the front. And they play around. Every now and then they bump into the tree. Guess what they discover? That tree is rooted and established. It's firm. <laughs> They're the ones who move. The tree isn't moving. It's that image of our lives being so secure, immovable in God's love, rooted and established in his love, so that you may know this love that surpasses knowledge. Not that it's unknowable, but we cannot completely comprehend it with our own finite human minds. There's something of God's love that goes beyond anything that we can fully describe fully articulate, fully comprehend. We, we, we will not be able to sort of outgive God or outlast God. There's something extraordinary about his love that whilst we can know it, we cannot completely know it. It surpasses our knowledge. And all of this strengthen our inner being that Christ may dwell that we may be rooted and established with a love that goes beyond our knowledge all of this is so that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God now there's a phrase if you remember nothing else what about that phrase for this week to chew over what it means for a human life for a human being you and me to be filled with the fullness of God and we've got to unpack a few things there, haven't we? And what does it mean to be filled? It's, it's every aspect of us, isn't it? It's our thoughts and our emotions, our will, our decision-making process, our imaginations, our, the realm of fantasy, our past, our future, as well as our present. Filled, filled, filled. With what? With just a little bit of God. What he's got left over. The scraps. The leftovers. No. Filled with the fullness of God. I mean, that's the kind of knowledge that surpasses our knowledge, that we can't fully understand. But that's what Paul prays for individual Christian believers in this church in Ephesus. I want to suggest, no, I want to, to state, to declare that that is what we're made for as Christians. We are made to be a dwelling in which the whole fullness of God lives. We are meant to be full of grace and love, full of truth. That's how God designed our lives to be. And indeed, so full that like, like him in creation, we would spill out of ourselves. That as we walk around our communities, as we go to our places of work, when people bump into us or brush past us, out spills grace, out spills truth, which is so beautiful 
so intoxicating, so real. That's God's intention for each and every one of us. That's what he's working in us, in Christ. Chipping away the, 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 the bits that work against that and allowing more and more of who he is to be revealed in our lives. That's God's intention. But as each of us knows, it doesn't work out like that quite in practice. And we're back to this battle, this struggle, where the enemy has, has gained topos, permission to land in our lives. And I want to look just for the next few minutes, uh, just very, very briefly, at, at precisely how the enemy gains access through these footholds. And uh, here I'm referring to this diagram. The devil's access point, deficits of love and truth, where there's not been complete love and truth as a foundation in our lives. And um, I, uh, I'm indebted to, to two people, really, uh, indirectly to Stuart Lees and Richard Penniston, who are the ministers at Christ Church Fulham, neighbours to ours, who brought this to light and kind of applied it uh, in a way that I can understand. But they, they would, uh, they're indebted, we are, to this guy, Dr. Ross Campbell, who's a uh, professor in psychiatry, particularly uh, in uh, uh, child psychiatry and psychology. And he's written a number of books. I guess the best known is How to Really Love Your Child. And uh, it's in this book, How to Really Love Your Child, that he sets out this idea, this analogy, if you like, of love tanks. And he asks us to picture each and every one of us with tanks inside ourselves, like a, like a water tank or an oil tank or something. And they are designed to be filled with perfect love. He's a, a Christian writer. He's writing from a Christian perspective. And so ultimately he would say that we are created by a God of love in his image. We're created with the capacity for God's love to live inside us. And he pictures them like tanks. And actually divides the tanks down into three, as you can see here on the sheet. There's a tank which has a sense of needing to, to belong, to feel part of something. We're not made in isolation. We're made by the God of Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're made by a relational God who only knows relationship. And we are called, each in our own way, commensurate with you know, our own individualism. And individuality, rather, not individualism, individuality. We're made to be in relationship. We're created. There's a deep sense in each of us to belong. We're made with a need, a sense to be valued. And we're made with a need for significance. And those come, uh, Campbell argues, particularly in the formative years and largely through the way in which we're parented, but also the wider family and other uh, formative figures um, in particularly our childhood years, but and beyond, they come in certain terms of belonging through appropriate touch. Just hugs and kisses and, and sort of snuggling up on the sofa while we're watching our favorite TV or whatever it is. You're, you're, as individuals, you're part of this family. And that, that comes through appropriate touch. Of course, um, that sense of belonging can be violated through inappropriate touch. The, the sense of value comes through focused attention, eye contact, Selfless listening, being listened to carefully and understood uh, through shared activity together. An activity that is not interrupted by picking up the phone or, or necessarily even answering the door if this is time set aside 
for the other person. Focused attention. And significance primarily, Campbell talks about words, the importance of words of affirmation. Words that speak deep into the individual's being of their worth, their significance, their value. Just in who they are intrinsically as people, irrespective of what they do. And from time to time, parents will need to uh, usher words of correction and words of discipline. But always within the context of, of, of significance and value for the individual. Now, there's much I could say here, and I'm conscious I'm maybe setting all sorts of hairs running. (laughs) But it's just to say this, that none of us in our fallen world are perfect. Parents with the best intention in the world, with, with every intention to love perfectly, as perfectly as they know how their children fall short. Joe and I, we, if you asked us whether we love our three children, we love them dearly. I was talking to some people last night, we were talking about our children and how we love our children. And yet, I'll say for myself, I know how I have let my children down in each of those areas. That their tank is not as full as it might be. Not because I don't love them, but because I'm just sometimes unable to convey that love in a way that they can receive it. Same with my parents, who I know love me, and yet we would recognize there are ways in which they have not always been able to convey the love that I know they have for me. And what that means is that if I was to score myself out of 10, I might score myself highly on each of those tanks, but it's not full. There's a deficit of love. And where that's true for me, that is almost invariably true for each and every one of us sitting here. And it's in that space, in that gap, in that love deficit, that the enemy can gain topos, landing space. You see, what happens with a a love and truth deficit? We, We don't truly know how much we're loved to the degree to which we were made to be loved, i.e. 100%. A love that surpasses our knowledge. A love that that is just so high and wide and deep and long, as Paul uh, uh, expresses it here. The foundation of God's love in our lives is compromised. And the enemy comes in and energizes and fans into flame that compromise. And so we respond in our human effort and striving. We respond by trying to fill the gap, to to kind of top up the tank, if you like. And we'll do that in our own effort, by our own ingenuity. We develop coping mechanisms to compensate for the love deficit that we either consciously or, in many cases, unconsciously have in our lives. So we'll we'll attempt to capture and steal love illicitly. We'll develop attention-seeking behavior in order to to, to kind of grab, to become center stage and to grab the love that we sense is lacking through lack of appropriate touch and belonging, through a devalued sense of self or an insignificant sense of self. Or we'll develop defense mechanisms because of the hurt that we, again, either consciously or subconsciously are aware of in our lives. And so we, 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 we put up barriers 
and defense mechanisms to prevent ourselves from being hurt. And so elements of controlling behavior arise in our lives. And over the months and the years, if they're unrecognized and unchecked, they become deeply woven patterns of behavior enmeshed in our personality. And they give place for the enemy to build strongholds in our lives where we believe the lies of the enemy. You're not really loved. Don't you remember as a child or that experience through your teenage years? You're not really significant. I mean, look at yourself compared to X or compared to Y. They're more beautiful or more talented. They seem to be the, the better shape or more able or more confident. We tend to judge our insides against other people's outsides. And we recognize the love and truth deficit. And the enemy is at work. That response, the self-generated desire to top up our own tanks, is a sin response. Instead of relying on the perfect love of God to come and fill us, we, fill our, we attempt to fill ourselves. It's a sin response. You say, Tim, that's really harsh. You're, you're, you're standing up there on that, it's not quite six foot above contradiction, but it might as well be. That's what it feels like. You're not wagging your finger, but you might as well wag your finger. You don't know my background. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my childhood experiences. How can you call me that a sin response? You don't understand. It was because of this, or because of that, or because of the other. I don't deny at all that there were other people in our lives that may have sinned against us. In fact, I'm sure there have been. That's why it's included in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. It's a recognition that we live in a fallen world and that other people's imperfections will bash up and rub against and damage us. Yes, I'm quite convinced that every single one of us has been sinned against. But what we're doing here in, in paring away everything else is looking at our response to their sin. And the possibility, the reality, that we have sinned in response to their sin. I've written more about this in the notes. It's a quick analogy. Imagine that I'm walking down the aisle with a cup of coffee. And uh, as I'm walking, you bump into me and I spill some of the coffee. I could say, oh, I spilled the coffee. That was all your fault because you jogged me. You nudged me. You should have been looking where you were going. Couldn't you see I was holding coffee? Yes, all of that's valid. Yes. But the issue is, what's spilt out of my cup? And people will knock us in life, and maybe they have knocked us in the past. Yes, I don't deny that at all. But the question is, what's spilled out of our lives by way of response? And unless it is grace and truth, then in some way it was a sin response, and the enemy is making play. And this series, Recovering Truth, is all about how we can recognize the schemes of the enemy, rid him out of our lives, fill, be filled with the perfect love and truth of Jesus, his life in us, 
so that actually when we go to work tomorrow morning and someone knocks into us and bashes us and squeezes us and pokes and provokes us, the only thing that can come out is grace and truth because we're 100% full by his spirit of his love. That's why I put on the sheet here right at the bottom. Paul to the Roman church. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or as uh, Paul puts it in his letter to the Ephesians right at the start, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has given us everything we need. And the issue is for us to recognize that, to repent of those times when we've listened to the lies of the enemy, colluded with him and allowed topos, footholds and strongholds to restrict and inhibit and reduce the life of God in us. I recognize February's been quite a heavy month. It's been sort of cold and dark and it's not a great... And here we are talking a lot about sort of the enemy and sin and all that kind of stuff. I can't wait for March. I've been beginning to prepare March. I just want to, I just want to encourage you. Because we're beginning to get into that spiritual toolkit that God has given us. The gift of repentance. Not penance. Not beating ourselves up or whipping our backs. Oh, woe is me. Repentance is a gift into life and to forgiveness, into restoration, into new hope and it's immediate we we think that repentance takes a long time where we've got to look grim for months and years no repentance is immediate repent and believe the good news and immediately Jesus starts walking out in that good news and we've got that in February uh, in March we're looking at how God in Christ has given us every spiritual blessing tools by which to live this victorious life I'm going to pause there, uh, except to say I'd love to invite you on Wednesday to come and digest more of this. We'll look at one or two other aspects of the devil's schemes and how we can begin to overcome them in Christ. But let's stand together.